Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, this is John here from Hampshire, England. Love the podcast, man. Keep it up. Love hearing what you've got to say. Got some great views. I um, just got back from a truffle pick with my little sausage dog. He accidentally found some the other day. And I've uh, been selling them to local restaurants, making more than I was earning on my nine to five. Something I'd love doing the most is just walking through the woods. I love foraging for mushrooms, all kinds of mushrooms. So uh, truffle's just a new one off the list. And accidentally I've stumbled upon a dog who's got a great nose for it. So yeah, thinking of quitting my full-time job and picking this up seasonally. Alright man, keep doing what you're doing. Bye. Hey Chris, this is Brenda saying hello from Austin. I have followed you for a while and now I'm reading one of your books for the second time, Sex at Dawn. And I think I'm liking it even more the second time. So I just listened to your Roma podcast about intoxicating love. And it resonated with ideas that I've thought about before. But it felt really good to hear them put into words the way that you did. I like the part about uh, upgrading to a higher frequency to connect with people at that same level or frequency. I think that sometimes we're just too distracted and silly and for some reason want to just stay at that lower frequency. So another thing I wanted to say is that um, I was surprised you did not mention anything about sex, about being a factor in love, toxic or not, but I guess that's a topic for its own Roma podcast. I think we're due for a quiz podcast that talks mainly about sex soon um, and one more thing um, talk to Stir Perel and let us hear it bye hi Chris this is Elle from Shanghai China I got your podcast from my friend Blake who also did an intro for you that you played in the beginning of the Jamie Wheel episode and I have so enjoyed your conversations with Sue Nemchek and Steven Donziger. I'll be replaying them over and over again periodically to remind myself what really matters to me and um, why I look up to the people I look up to make the choices that I make. So thank you for impacting me and my friends the way you have. And um, also want to give a shout out to Blake who after being inspired by you and many others decided to let go of his corporate career and switch gear into going back to school and pursuing a career in environmental policy so yeah he's back in New York City well not back but he's in New York City now and this might annoy the shit out of him but I just want to remind you again, Blake, don't forget to write Bob Wright. Um, yeah, 
Love you, Chris, for the work you do. Thank you. Thank you so much, Blake. If you do write to uh, Bob Wright, tell him I said hello. Thank you, John and John's dog, Snuffle Sniffer. No, Truffle Sniffer. (laughs) Sorry, Truffle Sniffer. I read today that uh, dogs can smell COVID on you or detect it within a second. They just walk up and like, COVID, not COVID, not COVID, COVID, not COVID. Um, Dogs are amazing. They can pick up cancer of various sorts. Um, Yeah. Why aren't we using more dogs? Oh, that's right. Because people don't make a lot of money training dogs to detect disease. Much better to spend hundreds of millions of dollars on machines. Yeah. The more I think about this, the more I think it's not really about the money. I mean, it is in the short term, but in the long term, it's that machines want to learn how to live. And so the machines and these systems, these super organisms have set things up so that we devote all our energy into teaching machines how to be alive. What do you think? What do you think data mining is? What do you think all these, you know, Google and Apple and all these giant tech companies, why are they tracking everything? Why have they sold us these speakers? Uh, why are our phones listening to us and watching us and following us around and monitoring our movements and what we buy and what we look at and what we say? I think it's because the fucking machines are trying to learn how to be alive. Frankenstein, baby. Yeah. Um, so, Ellen Blake, I've already thanked you. Brenda, thank you. Uh, as far as aroma coming up, you, you say your your ode aroma, where I talk about sex all the I talk about sex all the time. I talk about sex too damn much, according to most people. And who wants to hear a fucking old white guy talk about sex? I'm supposed to be like uh, no longer uh, sexually viable, right? That's what that, I'm a creep. Yeah, if you're a woman, you're a MILF or you're a cougar, you know, older white dudes, older horny white dudes are what? Like, you know, dirty old men creeps. There's there's no positive kind of hot word for it that I'm aware of. Uh, If anyone knows one, let me know, huh? And uh, yeah, and John and the, the, the truffle sniffer. Hell yeah, that's a good gig. I hope that works out for you. Thank you for the intros, everybody. If you want to send one uh, to me, please do try to keep it brief. No need to thank me and tell me how great I am. Uh, I appreciate it, but it gets embarrassing after a while playing those like, hey, everybody, listen to how much other people love me. You should love me, too. It, it, yeah, uh, not necessary, but I appreciate it. I'm more interested in you. What are you doing? Where are you? What's going on in your life? Where do you listen to the podcast? Uh, what do you like? What don't you like? Uh, What would you like to hear more of? Um, Anyway, you can send those to me at... uh, What's my email address? Oh, thatchrisryan at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. Uh, Let's see. I'm going to play you a little tune here. This episode, I should say, I'm getting tangential. I'm just by myself and I'm going tangential on your ass. Um, This episode is a really special one. I really enjoyed this conversation. I I enjoy all the conversations. Honestly, if I don't enjoy the conversation, I probably wouldn't play. I wouldn't post the the episode, Um, but I do. I always enjoy them. And this one I enjoyed 
especially. It's strange. Okay, here's what happened. I I watch stuff on YouTube. Sometimes I just, you know, waste hours of my life sitting there watching YouTube. And um, I watch a lot of stuff like camping. Recently, I've been watching stuff about, um, you know, people who like build cabins in the woods and, you know, just sort of how to how to do that from start to finish. I I get off on that and uh, I've got some ideas for building at some point in the medium term future. So I'm educating myself about that and camping and van life and, you know, that kind of stuff. And somehow I guess the algorithm threw up uh, a suggestion and it was hiking alone on some island uh, off the coast of the Greenland, I think, or Iceland or someplace. And it, it looked beautiful, and I clicked on it. And it's this dude, this young guy. I think he said he was 30. Um, and it's just a very simple, no words, no, just there's a soundtrack. You can hear him, you know, setting up his tent and tying his boots and the wind blowing and the birds chirping and so on. But it's just this guy, his name's Craig Adams, walking um, by himself in nature in a beautiful place and is really beautifully filmed. Um, I don't remember. I think he has a drone on this one. He, he Some of the episodes, there's drone footage. Some there isn't, depending on whether he's in restricted areas. Um, but, you know, he sets up a tripod and he walks by it and then goes and gets it. And, you know, he's, he sort of sets up shots um, but it's just him and he travels really lightly, uh, super efficient. And there's something just immensely relaxing about it. Um, yeah, it's like, it's, I don't know. It's like watching a, a moving landscape photography kind of thing. Um, just really just beautiful. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. Uh, his channel on YouTube. And, um, but there was something, there was something more to it when I was watching him and I went on and, and watched a bunch of them. I got very nostalgic and I started to feel like, um, a connection with this guy like from the future in a weird way. I felt like his future self looking back at him, or I felt like he was a reflection of my younger self when I was his age and I was traveling all over the world and I was wondering what the future will hold and so on and so forth. And there was just this kind of weird um, connection across time that I felt. And so on a whim, I just, uh, I sent him an email and said, Hey, I do this podcast. I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about your work. And he wrote back and he was like, yeah, I'm going to be hiking next week, but I'll be back uh, the following week. And, you know, we can, and we ended up having this conversation and, you know, is my favorite kind of conversation because it was, you know, simultaneously getting to know someone, uh, on that very sort of, um, you know, initial level where you've never met and, and we're talking through the computer, of course. So um, there's a, a, a definite palpable distance. And yet I did feel like 
we resonated in ways and and I think Craig felt it as well I, I felt like there was this sort of mutual recognition there like I kind of know you even though I don't you know I really love that feeling and I love the fact that uh, this podcast offers me the opportunity to have that experience sometimes and I have you to thank for that so thank you very much for listening, for being part of this community, and for supporting the podcast, however you do it. Um, there are ways you can subscribe to the podcast on my website, thatchrisryan.com. You can order t-shirts and books and beer koozies, and uh, you can look at the website, what makes this thing great, if you want to see what kind of equipment I use, what mics, what... Uh, podcasting gear what camping gear what van stuff i have um if you're interested in any of that you can find that on what makes this thing great.com you can also support the podcast of course by using the amazon link affiliate link on my website and you've heard me talk about that before if you spend money on amazon basically if you use that link uh anywhere from four to seven percent of what you spend gets kicked back toward me to support this and um it doesn't cost you anything more so it's a win-win the only ones who lose are jeff bezos and he can't fucking afford it all right i'm gonna play you a little tune and then i will be back to do a little more ranting and raving before we get to the conversation uh with craig this was um all right so the i'm gonna play a song i've played it before i fucking love this song it's called Little Gardens, and it's by a guy named Eric uh, Vitoff or Vitoff V I T O F F, um, and it's from his album Circuitry. Eric listens to the podcast, and he sent me a link to Jordan Peterson ranting about monogamy, and asked if I would uh, sort of requested like, will you talk about this on the podcast? And so. I will, and um, and then when I was looking at Eric's email, I was like, wait a minute, I know this guy, Eric. Who's Eric? And I searched, and I'm like, oh, yeah, he's the guy who sent me that song, Little Gardens, and I haven't played it in a while, so I'm going to play Eric's song, and then I'm going to talk about this, um, this uh, Jordan Peterson clip. So this is Little Gardens by Eric Vitoff from the album Circuitry. Hope you dig it.
So I got in trouble with the New York Times because I pointed out at one point during the discussion with this journalist that societies all around the world, and I thought of this as a universal anthropological truth and something that was well established to the point of being self-evident, but apparently not, that a major problem that every society faces is the control of aggression by young men in particular, and generally as a consequence of sexual jealousy and striving. And the universal answer to that, insofar as there is one, was the development of monogamous norms and social enforcement of those norms. And that, of course, is the great um, Jordan Peterson. Great. Great. Probably in air quotes. I don't know. I, I don't really have a set um, opinion about Jordan Peterson. I think that um, some of the things that he talks about make a lot of sense and um, are necessary. And I admire him for his willingness to talk about things that um, could get people angry and, and, you know, face some backlash, whether he cultivates that backlash or not. I don't know. Uh, I've never met him. He seems unhappy to me. Uh, from the very beginning, he seems wounded, unhappy, um, uh, resentful. The, the, I, I feel negative, a, a lot of negative energy around him, which I don't know. Maybe that bias is the way I hear things. But anyway, let's just talk about this little thing here, because I know he talks about this stuff a lot and I get a lot of people asking me to respond. And so, uh, as usual, I'm going to take the easy way and respond on the podcast rather than actually trying to write something or engage him directly. I've reached out to him to have him on the podcast. He's never responded. So I tried. Um, the, I find that that we, what he tends to do is he presents a lot of false framing of issues. Um, and that sort of puts me on edge. In this case, he says, you know, I would have thought it was universally accepted that uh, societies around the world have problems with violence generally uh, caused by young men. And that violence is due to jealousy and striving. And so, therefore, societies deal with this by creating uh, monogamy and socially enforcing it. Now, look at what's in that. Look, look at all the stuff he packs in there as if it's nothing, right? It's like the card, the card dealer who says, you know, so, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to finance this or are you going to pay cash? And there's no option to just not buy the car. Right. It's they try. It's an old trick. You you offer your victim uh, two options, both of which benefit you and are to his detriment. It's a rhetorical trick that Jordan Peterson uses a lot. And in this case, the the way he frames it is, OK, all societies have violence. Hmm, yeah, probably agree with that. And that violence is generally caused by jealousy and striving. OK, Jealousy is somewhat specific, but striving? What the fuck is striving? Striving could be anything. Like striving? I don't know what that striving. Attempting. Trying. You know, that trying, that causes a lot of violence. Um, and, and how does monogamy address trying? Striving? Uh, I don't know. But... So that's kind of a weird framing and give him a break. He's talking. He's not writing. So, you know, we 
say things when we're talking that might not be as clear as we'd like them to be. Um, but the idea that monogamy addresses jealousy and therefore neutralizes sexual jealousy as a cause of violence is problematic because, first of all, men fight over women, including in societies where there has been for social enforced monogamy. Just because there's monogamy doesn't mean everybody, every man gets a woman. Just because a man has a woman doesn't mean that's necessarily the woman he wants and that he's not going to try to get some other man's woman. In fact, you could argue that when women are considered possessions of men, as they are in most monogamous societies, that gives men more to fight over, right? Because they've got this property and the property in order to get that other guy's property, you are risking conflict with that guy, obviously. Um, so how exactly does monogamy reduce violence instigated by jealousy? That's not really clear. I mean, the, the theory is that, you know, if each man can only have one woman, then there are more women around for the other men, the less desirable men. Whereas in a polygamous society, um, you know, the Maharaja might have a thousand women, and that means that there are fewer women for the men who are not Maharajas. Uh, that's the sort of game theory view of this. But like many of these game theory views of human behavior, particularly mating and, and social behavior, I feel like, you know, I'm always reminded of Einstein's comment that where he said, in theory, theory and reality are the same, but in reality, they're not. In other words... Yeah, it might make sense on paper, but that's not actually how people behave. Just because everybody gets a house doesn't mean they're not going to fight over the houses. Um, I think that's pretty obvious. Secondly, uh, because some houses are going to be bigger and better and nicer and have, you know, well, I'm not going to I'm not going to get crude. But you see my point just because everybody, you know, you, you pass out as if women are, you know, party favors or something. Um, just because everybody gets one doesn't mean they're not going to fight over them because there will be variation in them. Um, secondly, this idea that monogamy was developed in societies as a way to maintain the peace because men without women would be violent. And so the best way to neutralize that violence is to give them what they need i.e. a woman. If that's the way societies function, then why the fuck aren't we giving them money or food or a place to live, right? Because people who have nothing to lose are dangerous people, particularly young men. And so this idea that, oh, we don't want young men to be violent, therefore we've developed this social system to make sure that they have access to women but we haven't done that with economics. We haven't done that with medicine. We haven't done that with the basic necessities of life. That makes no sense. That's bullshit. Why would a society function with this kind of like forethought and generosity and compassion and kindness in terms of sex, 
but not in terms of economics and the basics of life, right? As if Jeff Bezos is saying, okay, well, yeah, I know I could have 50 women, but um, I'm only going to have one at a time because, you know, I'm going to make the sacrifice uh, to the peace of society, uh, Jeff Bezos. But on the other side, he's like, yeah, but I'm not going to pay taxes and I'm going to have a $50 million yacht and fuck y'all who can't afford medicine or food. It doesn't make any sense. That's a ridiculous argument. But it's one of the central arguments for the... Uh, advent of monogamy let's go back to jordan listen a little more you know you you just described it in some sense as inhibition and control but i i think it's also useful and in, to think about it as integration and into a more sophisticated game um you know being in a, in a marriage obviously does involve not chasing after other people sexually but it isn't all inhibitory within the marriage, something sophisticated and hopefully wonderful in the long term is supposed to occur as a preferable substitute. And, and I mean preferable if it's done properly to the short term gratification that might be obtained by serial relationships, say, or sporadic relationships, because they're they're actually very difficult. And they also produce these violent outcomes that you described. And OK, again. Look at the way this is framed. He says something should happen in a long-term marriage that is a preferable substitute for the sorts of transitory pleasures that you get from these short-term uh, sort of, you know, uh, insubstantial encounters that you might have with people. <clears throat> now, the choice there is that you can have long-term depth or you can have short-term shallowness. Similar to the conundrum that Milan Kundera is writing about in The Unbearable Lightness of Being. But in reality, that's like saying, well, you can have, you know, the hearty goodness of home-cooked meals or the sort of convenience and um, expensive option of eating in a restaurant. Which do you want? As if you can't have both? Really? You can have, you know, home and a place where you know people and you know your way around and you have uh, memories associated with different parts of the landscape. Or you can have international travel. Could I have both? Who says you can't have both? He says it by the way he frames it. He has no conception that there are couples living their lives together who also have sex with other people. Why that's so inconceivable to him and most other people is frankly inconceivable to me because you've got lifelong friends, right? But you're also friendly to people that you just met a few weeks ago. You don't have to choose between them. Most people have a hometown that they think of as where they're from and where they like to go back to. And they associate a certain depth and intimacy and connection between that place and their identity. And yet, 
Believe it or not, they also go other places sometimes. Why this is framed as either or. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, of course, because, you know, probably in Jordan Peterson's life, it is either or like his wife is like, hey, no, you're going to you want to bang her, then fuck you, get out of here and we're divorced. But that's not how all relationships are. And so to deny the possibility that people are able to combine these two things is a self-fulfilling prophecy because then people have no idea that that that's even an option even though lots of men are looking for that and lots of women are looking for that but they're both afraid to say it they're both afraid to even recognize it in themselves because people like jordan peterson are prancing around saying that you only have these two options and you can't possibly combine them I was pelloried for that in quite a remarkable way. Claims were made that, you know, I was (laughs) making the claim that governments should, you know, hand over unwilling women to undesirable monogamous men or undesirable (laughs) men just to enforce monogamy. But really what I meant was, well, one of the reasons for marriage, apart from the fact that two fam, two parent families are clearly much better for children when the, with the father there, is that societies that allow unregulated polygamy or that degenerate into that are invariably rife with in extraordinarily high levels of violence. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. Okay. That's another thing that kind of bugs me about Jordan Peterson is how he fetishizes being attacked all the time. I was pilloried in quite an extraordinary way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You know, while you sold 10 million books and, you know, banked $10 million, like put up with it, dude. You can take it. I'm sure you can take it. Um but look, look at what he said there. Uh, you know, monogamy is uh, preferable because it's quite clear that children raised in families with two parents are much better off than children raised in families with one parent. What's he leaving out there? He's leaving out the logical conclusion that if two parents are better than one, maybe three or four is better than two. Maybe five or six is better than three or four. Maybe, in fact, children being raised among loving adults like hunter-gatherers were raised in a village where practically all the adults in the village or in the band took responsibility for the kids, helped educate the kids, took care of the kids, the women breastfeed one another's babies, where that kind of possessive paternal behavior, that, 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 proprietary paternity where that's my kid keep your hands off my kid don't go near my kid don't talk to my kid don't scold my kid don't help my kid don't kiss my kid maybe that's the wrong way to raise kids so okay yeah in most cases it's probably preferable to have two loving parents but it's not preferable to have two parents who fucking hate each other which is the option many times but if it is preferable to have two parents, then why isn't it preferable to have three or four? Where, where does that benefit cut off? Well, Jordan Peterson will never talk about that because he can't even fucking imagine it as a possibility because he doesn't know shit about hunter-gatherers. And the other thing 
that he says in that that passage that is you know again with the limited false framing um societies that uh, i think he says like descend into unregulated polygamy are extraordinary violent societies polygamy polygamy or polygyny is the more technical term means one man multiple women that's a harem that's the maharaja i was talking about earlier he is presenting again these two options and ignoring the obvious third option the the choice is not between monogamy and polygamy the choice is between monogamy polygamy and open ethical non-monogamy which is how our ancestors evolved according to these people who wrote a book called sex at dawn and according to a lot of other people, as you'll see if you read that book. So, again, this limited framing of the options is this used car salesman trick of, you know, are you going to finance it or are you going to pay cash? How about if I don't buy your fucking car? How about that as an option? How about I just walk out of here? How about I say, hey, Jordan Peterson, the only options aren't a one-parent family, a two-parent family, and, you know, the fucking Maharaja of, of, of you know, Rajasthan or something. Like, those aren't the only options. And, in fact, if you look at human behavior, you look at human sexual evolution, you're leaving out by far the most obvious option. So that's what annoys me about these things and and that's why i don't generally respond to them because you can't just say like um no you're wrong about this it's like you're framing the whole conversation wrong you're framing it in such a way that the most obvious option seems absurd because it wasn't listed on the menu that's basically what it is. It's like offer. It's like, here's what you can have. And there are five items on the menu and none of them are really what you want, but you can't order off the menu. That's this rhetorical trick. And so that's why I always say, you know, as far as critical thinking goes, the first step is question the premise, question the way the question is being asked, question the way the conversation is being framed, because often it's being framed in such a way that the real answer is not on the fucking menu. All right. That's all I'm going to say about Jordan Peterson. Thank you for sending that to me, Eric Vidoff uh, or Vitoff. I don't know. Sorry. I'm mispronouncing it one way or the other. Um, that was, uh, by the way, from a podcast uh, that Jordan Peterson was on recently with William Dalrymple, I think was the name. So you can go listen to that in context if if you'd like more context. All right, I'm going to play you out with something a little unusual. I don't normally play a lot of jazz on this podcast, but what the hell, let's play a little jazz. Let's get jazzy. Hope you're listening to this at two in the morning. Uh, this is uh, Joshua Redman, great sax player. Uh, the album's called Mood Swing. And the song is called Faith. And uh, 
I decided to throw this in because, I don't know, there's something about walking, about being alone, um, the sort of meditative state that you can get into when you spend significant time alone. Um, and this, for some reason, this piece of music has always uh, kind of been like a soundtrack to solitude for me. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's called Faith. And it's Joshua Redmond. And then you're going to uh, hear from me and Craig Adams. Craig spells his name with a K. And that's his uh, his website, Craig Adams, K-R-A-I-G, Adams.com. And you can uh, also look him up on YouTube, see his films there. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope you're well. I will be back with you soon.
Okay. All right, Craig Adams. Thank you, man. This is uh, this is a weird, interesting honor for me. One of the beautiful things about having a podcast is that I can reach out to people that I come across out in the media ecosphere, and uh, sometimes they will make some time to stop in and say hello. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, I keep my schedule free just for happy little coincidences like this. And, you know, thank you for having me. Well, you're a traveler. And one of the first things that I think we learn as travelers is that to um, to overschedule is to deny yourself most of the real juice that comes from traveling. Right. It comes out of left yeah. field. We don't know when or how it's coming. Yeah, I, I just try to keep it as free as possible. Um yeah, it's it's gradually become more and more, you know, no schedule kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, you're back in New York? Yeah, I'm in the Lower East Side right now. Um, currently looking at apartments all across Manhattan. Now's a good time to snag some low prices for rentals. But I've lived yeah. in the state of New York all my life. I've traveled all over, but I love New York City. I lived in the Lower East Side uh, in uh, 89, 88, 89 um, was wow. the name of the street. It was just a block south of Houston, about with Avenue A. Uh, I don't quite re I don't remember the name of the street, but there, I remember there was I was on the ground floor apartment. It was built right over the boiler for the whole building. And this pipe, this like six inch pipe came up right in the middle of my apartment. Uh, and uh, so you had to be careful never to touch the pipe or you'd burn, you'd scalding heat. It's an interesting time. Noise? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Banging, sense. hissing, you know. Yeah. It, it was like trying to sleep on a a bomb or something that was, you know, threatening to go off at any point. The whole city was like a bomb in those days. You know, this was early AIDS, pre-Giuliani, Lots of real craziness going on. Every time I tell people who are older than me that I live in the Lower East Side of New York, they always have the similar response. They're like, <laughs> are, are you okay? Yeah, like, exactly. Different. As far as I know, it's different. <laughs> it's different. It's like Columbia. You know, I, I always wanted to go to Columbia, but when I was doing a lot of traveling 20, 25 years ago, like you didn't go to Columbia. Forget about it. You'd be kidnapped before you got out of the airport. And now Columbia is a cool place to go, apparently. Have you done any trips down there? Yeah, I was in Columbia a month ago for the first time. Um, mm. But I've dabbled all across South America. And I hear stories. I I don't know. I guess I'm just young and naive. And I've never had a bad situation. So it's a really weird balance of kind of hearing these things, but then disregarding them as people who may not have experience there, or they just were in the wrong places at the wrong time. But mm -hmm. I've always had pleasant experiences in Peru and Nepal and Hong Kong and Guatemala, just everywhere. Yeah. How old are you? I'm 30. 30. Okay. You know, so you don't know much about me, I assume, but uh, I backpacked around the world through my 20s and 30s. I hitchhiked from college in upstate New York to Alaska, got a job in a salmon cannery for the summer, went back, finished college, hitchhiked back again with a buddy, 
Um, and then uh, I was just like totally hooked on travel and I trashed my plans to go to grad school. I had everything all lined up to go to Oxford and become a professor and all this stuff. And I was just like, no, nah, fuck it. I'm going to travel around the world. I'm going to literally I sat down. I said, OK, until I turn 30, I'm just going to float around the world and see what happens. I won't make any decisions, no marriage, no career, no grad school, no med school, nothing bonding until I'm 30. And then I'll know better what I want to do with my life. And um, yeah, and, and so my life has taken a very different path than it would have if I had stuck to the original plan. So throughout all those travels, was it always just consuming experiences and connecting with people and then putting yourself in risky situations, just learning and growing? Or was there any amount of capturing and documenting and sharing footage? Like, were there <laughs> blogs? Were there, I don't even know. I can't even imagine traveling without sharing it with an audience. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things I wanted to get into with you. Um, I, I was listening to this stream that you did a while in March, I think. And you talked about how you saw your life or, or your your work as taking experience from the darkness and bringing it into the light, I think was the phrase that you used. And I, I don't think you were referring to any sort of evil, uh, <laughs> you know, good continuum there. It just seemed like private bringing it into the public realm. And you were talking also about... Uh, you know, sort of like your experience is the product that you're selling in a way. And your experience is, of course, unique because it's you. It's the way you choose to plan your trips and film your trips and what equipment you use and, um, you know, decisions you make in terms of sound and music and whether there's dialogue or not. Uh, really interesting. And I, I did deal with that um, issue to some extent. But OK, so I graduated high school in 1984. I turned 30 in 92. So this is pre-internet. When I was your age, oh. the Internet was like something happening in Silicon Valley, basically. Okay. And I happened to live in New York at the time and I was in grad school. And I remember I got a. Uh, a computer, a compact computer, it was called. And you could like log in uh, to this network. The school had a network. And I remember thinking, man, this is going to take off. This is crazy because I'd been traveling for 10 years. So my whole thing was like, I want to go to grad school, but I don't want to be living here. I want to be in Spain. You know, I had a Spanish girlfriend at the time. And so as soon as I could, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to Spain. I'll do this remotely. I figured, you know, I was one of the first in the first wave of people to figure out how to live uh, independent of location. And uh, huh. anyway, but back to the traveling, I did. It was an issue. I, my thing was writing. So I wrote in my journal a lot and I traveled alone almost exclusively. So I spent a lot of time sitting in cafes and guest houses alone. And um, but it wasn't. Really, um, I was writing, I think, because I was lonely and I was writing to a future self. And sometimes when I watch your videos, um, I'm 
I feel like I am that future self that I was writing to because I'm, I just turned 59 and I project myself into your experience. And I think about 30 years from now, you're going to look back at these videos and it's like these videos are, um, uh, a celebration of youth in a way. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm projecting a lot here, but I feel like I see things when I watch your videos that you don't even know are there. And 30 years from now, you're going to look back and be like, damn, that's who I was. Yeah, I can understand that. And even just looking at vlogs that I made five or four years ago, I kind of am getting a glimpse of probably what you're feeling. And I feel some motivation to like, make a new video just using that footage and reflecting on what it looks like five years out and i feel like the more i do that and i think it would be cool to just to take an entire decade's worth of experiences documented in front of an audience and like just talk about what was really important and what i thought was important and yeah the ret the retrospective thing is something that i'm starting to feel more and more so i can understand that yeah yeah, it's interesting. I, I have some uh, journals that I kept from those days. And um, sometimes I I look at them not nearly as much as I thought I would look at them when I was writing them. Yeah. Um, but sometimes I'll open one up. And, you know, I've I've copied out a quote from a book that I, I was reading at the time. And I still remember that quote. I still remember that book. Or I'm writing about... Um, you know, uh, a kind of perspective on life. And 30 years later, it's like, that's still my perspective. I still think about that. I still quote that line from Henry David Thoreau. I still refer to this, you know, the autobiography of Carl Jung. Like it, it's, it's like, I guess I didn't realize that I was laying bricks that I'm still living in the same house. I can still see those brooks, bricks. They're at the bottom of the wall, right? The wall's gone up quite a bit since there, but that's still the bottom of the wall I live in. It's still there. It's, mm. it's, it's a, age is like a cumulative thing, right? It's not, it's not change. It's addition, I think, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And before it'd probably be more in our thoughts and the stories we tell with the people, you know, we can connect with over a campfire, coffee or beer or whatever, but more and more it's like literal documentation in your terms, journal with words. And for me, it's video. And I would say there's more data packed into video than journal. And it's always interesting when I hear people who have like books and books of like, I think even Tim Ferriss talks about how he has an entire library just with notebooks and he can go back and find it. But I just feel like that's so much work to <laughs> archive and catalog all of that information. Yeah. I would rather do the hard work of putting it into, you know, this trip in one photo, this trip in one one minute video or this entire year summed up into three minutes. I feel like that's so much more easy and useful to consume after the fact, but it's all kind of the same thing. It's all just the raw data stream of our experience, it's just distilled and edited and, you know, in dense formats in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. I, another thing that I think about a lot when I watch your, your, uh, material is that 
you are a creature of this world of this moment in history much more than i am i feel like i live in your world and i see your comfort for example with social media your comfort with various forms of technology that are relatively new um and you just even your comfort um and i don't know again you know i know i'm projecting onto you because i don't know you personally at all so please pardon me for doing that we're getting to know each other it's <laughs> um but like even the way you interact with other people like i was watching the um, the uh, kilimanjaro uh video Mm, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was, that was interesting. And I'm really glad that you, um, chose to frame that the way you did, um, you know, very sort of like, Hey, this is, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, I think a lot of what I, the reason I really enjoy your stuff is that it's both, um, very clearly crafted, but there's something extremely vulnerable and uh, sincere. And that's really hard to do. You know, when you're sitting in a cafe by yourself writing in a journal, it's easy to be sin sincere. Nobody's seeing it except you. You're writing to some imaginary figure that you imagine 30 years from now is going to look back and read this. Maybe no one will ever read it. You're alone. You're in the darkness. It's easy to be naked in the darkness, but you manage to be pretty naked with the awareness that you've got an audience of, I mean, some of your videos are over a million views, I think. And yet you maintain a very kind of uh, Zen-like sincerity and vulnerability in that. Is that something you struggled to, to achieve or is that just your nature as a person? Yeah, I think I started almost 100% doing all of my work and creating what I did for other people. And gradually over time, I've gained more confidence in doing it for my own sake. And I also love that you brought up creating work for your future self, because I think that's an even better definition of art. When people say they do it for its own sake, it's kind of a selfish reason. Like I create this almost like for my future self to look at or if people give advice, it's almost like what they wish they had years ago. Mm. And I think that's a better lens explaining why we make, you know, authentic art that's not really to make money or to get views for other people. I think that's a good definition. I think I'm going to start using that more and more. <laughs> well, I yeah. remember reading a quote somewhere uh, that you should always write posthumously. In other words, you should write as if you're already dead. Mm. You know, I've published two books and one of them was a worldwide global bestseller. A lot of people have read it or at least bought it. I don't know if they've read it. I don't care. Just buy it. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, you know, the odds are good that more people will read that book when I'm dead than when I'm alive. So when you're writing, it makes sense, you know, even from a marketing perspective, I guess, to assume that you're dead when most people are reading these words. And that gives you an incredible freedom, right? 
because it totally removes your ego from the interaction. Like, especially if you're writing something personal and your work is very much like a memoir, right? It's like a visual memoir of these days of your life, these years of your life. And I see that your personality is oriented toward that kind of uh, revealing you like that you like trans you this stream i was watching you talked about radical transparency and mm -hmm. feeling like a kind of freedom in having no secrets even now when i asked you earlier before we started i said if there's anything you say we can edit it out that you don't you're not comfortable with and you said i'm an open book that's obviously important to you where does mm -hmm. that come from yeah, it's something that I'm I'm getting better at and practicing, but this idea of literally not caring about what other people think. So, uh, you know, I'll have different epiphanies when I try to break through these layers of, do I have any secrets? What are they? Can I write them down? Why are they secrets? What if all of them just got announced like tomorrow for the whole world? Um, <laughs> all that really matters is just like how I a feel about it like other people's opinions don't matter all that matters is like the self so it just comes from that place of you know all that really matters is how i see myself and how i react to things so yeah. do you have a spiritual practice do you meditate or like how, how have you arrived at this sort of uh precocious <laughs> wisdom science capitalism humanism which i'm starting to learn a lot more about why he's dead um no i'm not religious i'm not I'm more agnostic spiritual is tricky because a lot of people get really mixed up in the semantics you could even you could argue that most things are religion because everything is made up by man like nothing is natural and then even natural I don't, know. I don't know. I guess that's the biggest mantra I know. I don't know what I'm talking about. So I'm just happy to learn and figure it out. And yeah, that's really what I'm up to these days. Walking, reading, learning, petting dogs, drinking coffee, sometimes exploring. Yeah. Connecting with people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's definitely where I was. I remember reading. There's an essay by Robert Frost that I read uh I think I was in Alaska or maybe just before I went to Alaska. And uh, he says, well, there are two images in that, in that essay I remember. One of them is he describes his education as being like walking through a field and, um, and uh, like brambles stuck to his pants. And those were ideas. And he just sort of went through life and some things stuck to him and others didn't. And that was the sort of accumulation of knowledge and experience and thoughts and that became him. Right. Hmm. And the other. So that was sort of a, a, a accumulation model of becoming who he became. And the other was the opposite. It was uh, he said like a piece of ice on a hot stove we each must ride our own melting and i, I thought what a, I, I think he actually said a poem must ride its own melting but i took it to mean as a life and i felt like yeah i want to ride my own melting i want to yeah. sort of 
you know, the melting of ego, the melting of expectation, the melting of disappointment and, and preconceptions of what my life is going to be. I just want to like melt that stuff down and let it lubricate my journey. Hmm. Jeez. Yeah. Every time I've come across his poems, I've always connected. So I should do some more research into you know, his foundation stuff. And I think you mentioned Thoreau as well. You know, obviously there are on point for a minimalist hiker mm. nature boy so <laughs> yeah definitely. How, how, so how do you describe how would you reflect that question back to yourself like would you describe yourself as spiritual or um yeah i i, I feel like i have a I, I've had it. I mean, again, like you, the word spiritual is tricky because people mean different things by it. Mm -hmm. I guess what I mean by it is that um, I have a strong sense based upon experience that the material realm in which all this is happening is a very partial um, view that we have of whatever we're going to call reality, that there are planes above and below. And, and by that, I don't mean better and worse or, or good and evil or anything, but I, like that it's, it's like our perception of reality is like our perception of light or sound. There's a range that we can perceive, but there's all sorts of stuff happening at higher and lower frequencies that we aren't capable of perceiving. And sometimes I have had experiences that seem very clearly uh, a sort of flash of perception of something outside of that normal realm, outside of that normal spectrum, you know? Like, what's that? Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like, oh, changing. It, it makes you realize that you're probably much smaller and more insignificant or, you know, it, there's just more out there. Right. Is that kind of a, an outcome of that line of thinking or? Yeah. Yeah. That things are, you know, by definition, more nuanced than the human brain. You know, there's no way that the brain can be capable of perceiving everything. Right. It's we know mm -hmm that the brain exists within a much larger context. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm spiritual in the sense that I think there's a lot more going on than, than we normally perceive. And that gives me comfort, but I don't yeah. think the comfort is the reason I believe it because there were years when I didn't believe it and then things would happen and be like, holy shit, what is that? Now, how do I integrate that into my understanding of reality? Throughout life, do you think you've gained slowly more and more like building a house of your understanding of who you are and your place in the world and just like the foundational, just what is life and all of this? Or have there been like tectonic shifts or sudden changes where it's just like oh that whole house is gone i gotta rebuild a new house like do you feel like you've been on a single path towards understanding or is it yeah yeah I, I, uh it's both of course i mean you know like you said your mantra is i don't know anything 
And I think any intelligent person really ultimately is going to arrive at that mantra. And and another mantra is everything is what it is and the opposite. I was talking with a friend this morning about um, how and we were talking about relationships and how um, I think a lot of relationships falter because we're afraid of acknowledging um, the sort of uh, certain aspects of the other person that we know are there. And, and I'm thinking specifically of, of sexual stuff. Um, like okay. we're, we're afraid to acknowledge that the other person is going to be attracted to other people. So let's say it's a heterosexual couple. The dude is freaked out that the woman finds other men attractive, has sexual fantasies about other men, whatever. So he's freaked so that, out about that comes that. from him though. Right. It's on his insecurity. Right. And then vice versa, right? Like the woman doesn't want Did him she, to look at other women. The, the, you know, the, yeah. she doesn't want him to look at porn, whatever. Like, but so most we, people blame the other person. Yeah, when it really comes from themselves, right? Yeah. And the reason that we're freaked out about it is because we know that we have it inside ourselves. So we set up this relationship model where it's like, I'll pretend not to be who I am. If you agree not to pretend not to be who you are, and then we'll both pretend that we don't recognize this happening with each other, and then we'll yeah. like live half our lives together, even though we're really together all the time, constantly terrified of what we know is there. It's just a fucking mess. Yeah. It's like a castle built on sand or limestone. Right, exactly. And so how do you overcome this? How do you... Uh, you know, resolve this issue. And the only way to resolve it, I think, is to surrender to it. And as you surrender to it and say, look, I know you have these appetites. I know you have these thoughts. I, of course you do. You're a human being. This is what my first book was about, by the way. And, uh, and as soon as you do that, suddenly, instead of that thing having power over you, you absorb its power and you are empowered by it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think women are very attracted to men who aren't fucking afraid. Right. So suddenly by overcoming this fear, by surrendering to it, you become a more powerful person. So surrender results in power. Right. Seeking power often results in weakness because now you're mm -hmm. like the kind of person who's running around trying to be powerful all the time. That's a weak person. So everything, this is a very convoluted way of answering your question, but I feel like, you know, as I've gotten older, I've become more uh, capable of, of realizing the, the incredible wisdom of that yin yang symbol. Right. That all darkness contains a spot of light. All light contains a spot of darkness and they're swirling around each other constantly. Hmm. <clears throat> and that's the nature of reality. But anyway, wow. back to camera equipment. Dichotomy. Yeah. Camera <laughs> it's the yin yang of my Sony a7. <laughs> <laughs> but you you asked earlier about producing and or, you know, traveling and what I felt. So the first few years of traveling, it was all just 
experience. It was all just, I want to learn. I want to meet people. I want to read books. I want to lie in hammocks. I want to swim in amazing water. I want to eat mangoes. It was all just me, me, me. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I started, I felt like, okay, I'm building something. I don't know what it is. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I will be better at it for having had these experiences. So that was how I sort of justified it to myself. And then uh, I had this job in, in New York, uh, in the Diamond District, actually crazy weird time in my life mid-20s this millionaire hired me to be his personal assistant and then tried to like seduce me to stay in new york um even though like i wanted to go backpack around the world and he was like no i'll give you a million dollars it's this whole i've told this story on the podcast before it sounds like and, a movie yeah it was it was pretty intense um, anyway, I finally quit that job. And when I quit, he went and bought me the best camera uh, that there was at that time, a 35 millimeter. Anyway, it was the Nikon F3 high eye point. You won't know what that is, but that was the camera that back in that time in the mid to late 80s, that was like what all the greatest National Geographic photographers were using. And geo and you know these magazines that existed at the time so he bought me this camera and i didn't even really know how to use it and there's a 35 to 135 lens zoom lens and i took that with me to asia and learned how to use the camera and then i sold some photos to Rand mcnally and some magazines and some you know made some money to keep traveling and i got into photography but what ended up happening was that I felt that the photography was interfering with my ability to travel. So there was a conflict between producing content and my the immediacy of my experience. So I'd see something beautiful and think, okay, I need to be here let's see, the moon will rise there in about 10 days. And the, there needs to be cloud cover, I need some like a little kid in the foreground here kicking a soccer ball. And, you know, I, and I, it's like, well, I can't travel like that. Like, you know, that's, you have to really be committed to get the perfect shot. Um, yeah. And I wasn't yeah. committed. Yeah, I think that's a skill that you can hone being able to do both in a nice balance. It's impossible to entirely enjoy, you know, have that solo, no camera experience while capturing content, but you can find the correct balance. And I think I've found that. But on the other end, it would be very hard. It would be almost impossible and pointless for me to travel without documenting in some sense. I, I think I'm the opposite of how you started at this point. Yeah. And you've always been that way. This isn't something that's happened over the years. 
Yeah, I would always take photos, but you know, I've been full-time YouTube for probably seven years now with different channels, but documenting since high school has always been a part of my life. And it just goes back to that core thesis of just kind of fracking your own life experiences to productize yourself, to monetize your own hobbies. So all you have to do is just live and be yourself and be authentic. And uh, yeah, that can fund more that, that can fund and enable more experience. And that's what I find so interesting. One of the things I find so interesting about you is that you don't perceive any conflict between monetizing your own experience and the authenticity of that experience. Yeah, there's good and bad ways to do it, though. You know, if you're renting out your time and effort to other people and selling things that you don't really care about and putting on a fake show to sell products and services, even just like, yeah, there's a whole aspect of, of just capturing and documenting for other people's sake ver versus what you want to do. The number one, like I am making more than enough money right now. I have a lot of freedom. Like I practically am retired at this point, but I am aggressively just hunting down and destroying any last obligations I have throughout my entire life. Freedom is the only thing I care about at this point, and uh, it's good and bad. You know, I've done some video essays kind of talking about minimalism, how it helped me get to this point, but then more so than the the shiny veneer of what you see with everyone talking about minimalism and just getting rid of things like three years later, there are some bad things about minimalism as far as cutting out too many people out of your life and relationships and looking at everything in a, a scale of like along a spectrum, how much is this person bringing me or how much is this person enabling me to be who I am? And yeah, you just analyze and test a little bit too much. So I'll pull yeah. back a little bit. You know, the, the minimalist, the two dudes who sort of wrote the book. Right. Yeah. They're, they're friends of mine. I, if you want to meet them anytime, I'd be happy to introduce you there. I watched uh, your uh, podcast with them. Oh, did you? I'm good. Good friends with Matt. Um, I've chatted with the whole crew. Um, I think it would be good to chat with them on their podcast at some point, but yeah, that was, that was a good interview. I, I enjoyed it. You know? Yeah. They, yeah. They're interesting guys. Um, you you talk about minimalism and then you went right into relationships with which is interesting because I don't think they really go there. They're more about material stuff. How big is your house? How much crap do you have piled up in the attic? Yeah, that's pop minimalism. <laughs> that, that's like the Justin Bieber. There, you know, it's, it, minimalism is old, but as far as being on YouTube, like you know, it, there's a couple different waves of minimalism going around i guess oh, i don't know okay. if you watched it's like feminism netflix yeah 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 the, the new the new kids coming in to shake things up <laughs> no that's yeah. it, i watched you're talking about wait maybe we're talking about different minimalists here maybe there are too many minimalists in the world uh oh, the two yeah yeah ryan and ryan and yeah. josh yeah okay right, you said matt i wasn't sure who matt was so matt shot their first uh, Netflix and the second he's like a filmmaker but he's oh, got okay. millions of subscribers on YouTube talking about minimalism so he's become almost bigger than them oh really oh, okay metrics wise sure. interesting right 
So how would you feel about being in a relationship with a woman who was monetizing her privacy as a cam girl? I would be okay with that. Yeah, it would take some practice, you know, if you have never done that and then it's all happening at once, that's going to be difficult. But over time, I would get to a point because they would align with my values of, you know, people can do whatever they want. And however it makes me feel is under my control. And if it affects the, affects me in a negative way, that's great ammunition. That's great intel for, you know, what really bothers me. And I should dig into that and work on myself and it has nothing to do with them. Right. Yeah. What were you like in high school? Where did you <laughs> said you grew up in New York? Where, where were you? Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York in Rochester, Finger Lakes, Went to school in Buffalo, New York for television, film arts, did my four years, got an internship at MTV here in New York City, Times Square. Hated that. It was very corporate office, stifling. You know, I was just a small fish, very small fish in a, in a large dying pond. Um, started shooting <laughs> weddings and oh, nice. started doing freelance work, working right. with NYU Tisch people and just fell into freelance uh Became friends with startup culture here in New York City. Um, yeah. And then just started on YouTube and documenting my life and vlogs and travel. And yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in the Finger Lakes. I went to college in, at Hobart in Geneva. Wow. And uh, yeah, my I parents. soccer in Geneva. Oh, yeah. 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 Small it's a beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Growing up, you you just don't have any perspective. But every fall, I go back to the upstate, like Adirondack, Catskills region. Like mm. no matter where I am in the world, I'll probably come home just for every fall foliage because it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the first video I saw of yours, and I don't even know why. Uh, I guess the YouTube algorithm. <laughs> yeah, it knows shot you it better up. than you know yourself. Well, I want to talk to you about that. You, in your stream there, you got into some pretty black mirror stuff where you're talking about Google knowing who we should marry better than we do and uh, making our decisions about what media we would uh, we should be watching. It, it becomes, you know, your vision of this techno future becomes pretty dystopian from my perspective. And maybe this is a difference of perspective because you seem to be pretty upbeat about it. You know, Google's going to tell me what I should watch and what I should read. And Google has yeah. my best interests at heart. And they're like, yeah, do they, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, Huxley, Brave New World. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you, where do you think we're going with that? You Again, you seem to be comfortable in this world in a way that I'm not. Do you feel, are you just, is it a resignation that things are the way they are? Or yeah. are you f optimistic about where things are going? Yeah, I'll read the articles and read the books and have the aha moments and get really worried and like, oh, we got to do something to change it. Like, haven't you heard about this? Like Google this, like tech companies. Um, and I think those emotional responses aren't helpful. I'm just trying to learn as much as I can from all the different perspectives, but I am leaning towards one general idea that, yeah, recommendations are going to be created much better that, but by algorithms. And as soon as Google 
Amazon, Facebook, all of them can make those recommendations, you know, it's game over pretty much, you know, they can control in small ways how we vote, where we live, who we love, who we talk to, what we buy. It all starts with how we buy. Like, I honestly think that marketing is <laughs> the bootstrap for AI and it's, it's really the downfall of like free will yeah, in the traditional sense of how we know it. Like I, I am already under the idea that we don't have free will and it's slowly people are starting to realize it, but yeah, just algorithms controlling what we buy and what we consume as far as media and products, that's the start of it. And it's already happened. And as Do far as we, am I worried we, about it? Resignation, I guess, is a good idea, but I I don't feel like I can control it that much. Um, so all I can do is just learn it, learn more and understand it. And I think through that understanding, it's just, okay, yeah, this is, this is it. And so do you think we... Dystopian. <laughs> uh, yeah. Do you think we had free will and we're in the process of losing it or... Are we just, you know, a new, we have a new boss out with the old boss religion and, you know, nationalism and in with the new boss, Silicon Valley? I think it's been pretty well understood uh, for hundreds of years now that there is no free will. Like, I'm a firm believer in determinism and randomness it rules the world. Um, and it's it just makes life easier, like civilized world and society just runs so much smoother more smooth more smoothly when people have this idea that they are making conscious choices <laughs> you know, tech tech companies are just starting to make it very apparent that like yeah voting what we choose it's just every choice we make is slowly being steered and geared and pushed towards one direction and it's a small number of people rich people in power that are kind of you know making this happen yeah, I, see, I need to read your book. The more I, I, the more I read summaries and look at it, I am interested. So I'll probably, I'll probably pick it up this week because that's which, all I do. I walk around and read, yeah. so I will devour it. How many hours <laughs> is there? An audio book or is it? Yeah, you, you're talking about Civilized to Death. Yeah, yeah, I read the audio book for that. Awesome. I'll, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna pick the, it up. The first book, Sex at Dawn, um, they had actors read it. Uh, there is an audio book, but I didn't read it. Um, yeah, it's funny. And I'll be watching uh, some future video and wondering if you're listening to me as you're walking along there. It's mm -hmm. weird, weird kind of surreal intimacy. Yeah. Um, you're so in the context of this, I don't know if we want to call it resignation or just acknowledgement of the way things are. Your work does seem to be in some ways um, in, in a confrontation with that. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's definitely a celebration of a natural world, which we're always, you know, watching be devoured. Um, it's a celebration of solitude in many ways, which is one of the most rare commodities in the world and becoming more rare as population explodes and remote areas get increasingly overrun. Um, and it, and also minimalism is, uh, 
is a conflict with consumerism, right? Mm -hmm. So do you do you see these things as forms of resistance or is this just who you are and you just do it because you do it? Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely counterculture and it's so every, you know, identity I identify, I choose or process minimalism. They're all tools just to help me solve problems and the problems of the modern world are ones of abundance. It's too many choices. It's too many things to buy. We just get drowned in information. Uh, just too much news, too much fatty, easily high calorie food. So minimalism helps solve a lot of those problems. Uh, you know, um, the fewer desires you have, the the less you'll be disappointed when they don't happen. And there's like a minimalism of relationships. There's a minimalism of desire. There's a minimalism of just like, I have no emails, no schedule. If I work on a project, I will work on it till it's done and then have nothing. So it's minimalism has been, has taken root in every aspect. And that's why, it's weird doing like I've reflected you're correct in assuming that there is a lot of conflict in what I do for work like Amazon and Google are my are my income like I get checks from like thanks Bezos thanks Larry um uh and yeah yeah and in a sense I'm definitely really conflicted yeah it's your videos um, are interesting because they're so um, immediate uh, in the sense that, you know, I watched the first video of yours I watched, you were on that island off the coast of Greenland, I think. And I was struck the image, you know, I was looking at YouTube and there's this image of this incredible angular green island with big cliffs. Mm -hmm. And the the headline was like, you know, walking alone for hiking alone for, I don't know, 17 miles or something on this island. 60. 60. Sorry. The big six zero. And I clicked on it and it starts, you're standing there in a bathroom, uh, like at a, you know, re you know, whatever, where you start and you're just looking at yourself in the mirror airport, yeah, airport. And then you're like tying your shoes and you're like walking and there's some people in the background and you don't say anything. And, <laughs> and I was just totally drawn into it. Hmm. Um, almost like it was like a live webcam that you had like stuck to your forehead. It was like I was in your experience. And I, I feel like that might be the appeal of this because it's not like, hi, I'm Craig Adams and today we're gonna take you in a blah, blah, blah. And you know, here's my partner and you know, and this is the blah, blah. And sometimes at the end of the video, you'll sit down and say, okay, so here's how this worked out. Here's why I like this trail. I flew into here, I drove here, da, da, da. And you sort of like give them, you know, how you can do this. But I feel like so many people are watching your videos instead of doing it, right? Either because they can't or they just don't have the energy or whatever. Yeah. 
So how would um, I define the success of the videos? Yeah. Um, right. I make conscious choices to have wide angles for POV to make it immersive. I subvert expectations as far as people thinking it's going to be, hey, what's up, YouTube? This is the hike, handheld, shaky. Right. Definitely a filmmaker who started hiking. And I would mm-hmm. say the vast majority of hiking footage and videos on YouTube, at least, will be hikers who get a camera and start shooting stuff. So I'm going in the opposite direction with that. Right. And, um, yeah, I, I just have... I've I've been doing this for a while, you know, YouTube for a while, so uh, I'm able to go to places, have a diverse menu of locations, and just dedicate an entire month to one single trip, one video. So, yeah. It's awesome. Do you remember the first time it occurred to you to do this? Um, hiking or the silent aspect or filmmaking or the the whole thing that the like i'm gonna make a movie of myself hiking and you're just gonna hear ambient sounds i'm not gonna say anything no dialogue yeah i started out I'm like i sold a channel called wedding film school so i was like in a completely different genre i hated that i just wanted to do like travel vlogging i started doing that in the city and i was like okay this is like crazy kind of show offy um like forced happiness so i started traveling more just to kind of open myself up like this new york city of of thailand the new york city of blah 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 um and it was just still too forced happiness like this is a strange thing making YouTube videos in different cities when you're there for the first time. So who mm. am I to recommend anything in Bangkok? I'm an idiot, right. you know, right. I'm a dumb American young idiot. So I felt uh, a fakeness with that. And there could have been some aspect of making videos that kind of leaned into that. Like I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm going to go through the hardship of looking like a fool, learning about these new things and trying this food and going to this neighborhood uh, for your sake so that you, when you come to Bangkok, you can have a leg up. Um, and that was just way too crazy. And I'm, I'm going into the mountains, the nature where it's quieter, where there's fewer people. And I felt amazing. This was some of the first time that I was like truly alone. You know, I would travel by myself, but always link up with people and other YouTubers to collaborate because I felt it was expected of me and I always thought it would be better content. Uh, But once I embraced being alone, because yeah, that's also a skill that you have to uh, improve at. It's pretty easy to go on an overnight hike, but sitting there by yourself with no one to talk to, nothing to do, not many people do that these days let alone for five days at a time. So the Iceland video you were talking about, yeah, I didn't see someone for probably three days. And that was one of the first times that had ever happened. And I just felt that ambient music that comes in slowly, fades out, and then pretty much no talking, you know, just minimalism, showing and not telling would fit that landscape and just the experience of being there by myself. And I loved that. Yeah, the alone aspect was definitely something I leaned into with future videos. You know, I think that might be why I connected so much and why I got into that uh, circuit of what we started talking about, uh, you know, the the way your future self is going to look at these. Because one of the... You know, I talked, uh, most of the people who listen to this podcast are closer to your age than to mine. And a lot of what we talk about is, 
you know, I have this whole series where I talk about my travel experiences back in India and, in, you know, 1987 or Nepal or Thailand, you know, back in the day. And one of the big differences between traveling then and traveling now is, you know, there was no Internet. There are no smartphones. I, I remember going to Kashmir the first time I went to India. I went up to a place called Srinagar and uh, I... I had bought this little shortwave radio when I left New York. I, I bought this radio and I was up in Srinagar and I would at night, I'd like, you know, open, pull the, the antenna up and tune this little radio and until I heard a, an English speaking voice. And it was like, you know, this is the BBC World Shortwave or blah, blah, blah. And they were talking about cricket scores or something. And I listened to that for this connection to my world because my world was so far away. I was so isolated, you know, and now I, you know, I've I was in Thailand last a year ago and, you know, you go to a cafe and everyone's sitting there looking at their phones, talking to their fucking mother or texting their girlfriend back home. And it's like, you haven't gone anywhere, bitch. You, <laughs> you are nowhere. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're not traveling. And, and I'm totally aware of the fact that someone from 30 years earlier would look at me and say, Oh, what you got on a jet and 12 hours later, you were in India. That's not travel. You got to take a ship, you know, a steamship. So I, I recognize that there are, there's a continuity in this, but I do think there's something that people are really missing. And, and it's what you described. It's the solitude. It's the being really, really far away from everyone, you know, that's such a valuable experience. Yeah, so clarifying coming from New York. Yeah. Um, but it also goes back to them and their own, like the more that you compare it to your own experience, you obviously it might like frustrate you and stuff. Um, yeah. Cause people can like download Netflix shows and watch that in their hostel. Like I, I've seen people <laughs> yeah. hiking, watching shows on their phone while they're hiking. Um, <laughs> like we can shake our head and like, be like, you're not doing that right. Um, but yeah, people even like just the whole idea of caring about feedback content in general is, is a really slippery slope that I'm working on. But yeah, a lot of people will just be like, even just having the camera is ruining your hike. What are you doing? And none of that matters. Like all that matters is just your own experience. So, so yeah. Sorry. Well, I mean, you're kind of like a turbocharged version of the person who walks down the trail videotaping themselves as they walk down the trail. Right. Mm. I, I mean, you're, who knows who they're doing that for? I, I never, you know, you see people at concerts and they all have their phones. They're all like, well, who's ever going to watch that? You know, like, I don't, I don't know who watches all this content that's being created all the time. Yeah. Any judgment you throw at that person, you know, that always comes back to yourself. You know, why, why does that upset you? Why does it, why do you feel the need to like judge that person? It has everything to do with like your own insecurities. Like maybe you're jealous that you're not doing it like that. Like maybe if you tried it, you would feel like embarrassed. So you're jealous they're getting away with it. Like, yeah, just the more that you can like really get to the root of it. It's, 
that's what's helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So how do you I, deal? I get the looks. I get the stares. Right. You know, just looking the way I am and having a big camera in some of these places, that's enough. But, you know, setting up a tripod uh, mm. on a trail is even weirder, like, for hikers. So yeah. Right. Yeah, I was thinking about that on the Kilimanjaro video because that's one of the only ones I've seen so far where you're in a group of people and mm. you must have had to explain over and over again what you were doing and who you are. And I mean, there there's a social aspect to that, which uh, wasn't happening. And also, yeah. you looked exhausted from the beginning. At the very beginning of that, I thought, man, like, did he just break up with his girlfriend or like... The, the guy doesn't look happy. He's having trouble in Africa. <laughs> yeah. So for context, people, that was not a trip that I planned. I planned on doing Kilimanjaro when I was much more experienced. And uh, a person reached out to me. He's like, I will fund the whole trip. I'm going. Like, just join us. Uh, I'll take care of you. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, you can do it. I'm like, okay, fine. Showed up in Africa. Uh, I was sick. I had like a slight flu, cough. Just from the beginning from the beginning yeah uh, and then okay. i made choices for the editing and the production of the video that kind of reflect how i was feeling i like you said i never hike with people i'm always alone and i gain energy i gain calmness from that and it was very sapping and very stressful for me to be with so many people in our group uh with the porters the chefs the hikers we were a group of 110 ish and then there were other groups from all around the world alongside us. So on the mountain, we probably had like a small camp of 600 people, which yeah. is insane to me because we had to bring up everything. It's like a burning man that goes up and down the mountain. <laughs> it was insane. Uh, so I didn't yeah. put music. I was just a fly on the wall with the whole video. Like I really included other people's laughter, their jokes, their faces, because I didn't feel like a part of them. Like I literally in the video and then also yeah. on the trip, I felt like I was just like, does anyone else see this? Like, this is crazy. <laughs> There's this beautiful moment where you've got the camera on a table. It's like a mealtime or something. And the camera is focused on you. And there's some woman <laughs> talking about her dogs. And he's like, I've got a dog blanket. I've got the dog pillow. And you just sort of go, you're definitely a dog, mom. <laughs> and there was this like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> that was yeah. really good. It was and then she like kind Beautiful. of ignored me and then went back to her story. I'm just like, cool. Yeah, yeah I think I'm going to get sick tonight. Yeah. yeah. So I get people asking to hike with me all the time. I'm like, no. Um, yeah. I'll hike with my brother, my girlfriends. And then, you know, I, I could make money doing tours and meetups and workshops, but it's just not fun. I don't want to do no. it. It's too much responsibility. It's not me. Yeah, you've got it worked out pretty well. Uh, what's it like? Like, I, so I traveled through my 20s and 30s, right? And in my late 30s, uh, I'd finished my doctoral dissertation. And the dissertation was about human sexuality in prehistory. And my professors were like, you should write a book. This this could be a good book. You know, and I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay, write a book like that's like telling me I should build a rocket and go into outer space or something like, yeah, come on. Anyway, a few years later, I met a woman who's a psychiatrist 
uh, she had a steady income and was really smart and was like, hey, I think you should write a book. I'll pay the bills. You write the book. And that really motivated me because, you know, she was getting up every morning and going to work, running a psychiatric clinic, really working her ass off. And then uh, she would come home and read what I'd written that day. And, you know, we'd discuss it. And it's like, well, the least I can do is fucking write. She's doing all this. So it really it, it enabled me. It, it both freed me up and motivated me. I wrote the book. The book became a bestseller. Uh, next thing you know, I'm giving TED Talks, I'm on TV, I'm on all these documentaries, I'm on Joe Rogan's podcast, I'm on everybody else's podcast, I start this podcast. So at the age of, you know, roughly 40, I became a semi-public figure where I'm getting lots of emails from strangers, I'm getting people offering me money to do things I don't really want to do. This all happened to you. When? In your mid-20s? Something like that? Yeah. Within the last two or three years, it's kind of become exponential. It's kind of crazy. It was yeah. crazy for uh, me in my 40s. So I'm trying to imagine what it's like for you when you're still trying to work out who you are. And suddenly all this stuff's coming at you. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm just trying to read as much as I can and learn things from smarter people because uh, every, like if, you know, you, you look at yourself a year ago and I was an idiot. So <laughs> as long as I'm heading in the right direction, I feel good about that. Um, I just have so much free time. Like I've gotten rid of, like I said, I've got a lot of freedom and I'm trying to get every, I'm fracking myself for freedom at this point. Um and yeah, I just want a dog. I want to keep growing my long-term relationship with my girlfriend. Probably gonna move in this week or next this month. Um, walking, reading, probably shoot a YouTube video every month. Um, but I'm I'm making more than enough. I'm saving, and you know I've got no one to tell me what to do. So I'm I'm getting better at learning what the correct amount of sponsorship what a long-term relationship with anyone that i do rent out my audience for looks like and yeah feel pretty good just want to keep learning and just relax and chill how do your uh, how do your parents feel about your career path yeah so i was definitely the black sheep in the family everyone else was go to school get married have kids um, medical tech lab stuff. Um, my parents, my dad was an electrical contractor, an entrepreneur. So he definitely taught me a lot of stuff about that. My mom was a stay at home mom. Um, yeah, they encouraged me. They motivated, motivated me to go to college. And when I was in college and didn't see the need for college anymore, like, uh, they definitely kept me in and kept me, <laughs> wanted me to graduate. So, um, yeah, in hindsight, like I probably didn't need to go to college at all, but you know, hindsight's 2020. Um, I definitely have, like, I, I've even had this conversation with my girlfriend a bit cause she's in a similar boat. She's, um, she's Israeli living in the U S so she, different cultures have different amounts of like dependency on traditional family values and um i'm just very individualistic i just individual uh i just 
I see the value in family, but I'm I'm more so of the camp of choose my friends and family than the people I grew up with. And yeah. I'm starting to realize that there's some there's a lot of good, there's a lot of value in being a weed that blows in the wind versus a tree. And this also comes back to like having too much control and freedom in my life to cut out anyone I don't think is gelling. Um, when there's good, when you have to like kind of force yourself to be, to put up with people who have different ideas, you know, family. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier when you were talking about the minimalism of relationships. And I was thinking about how um, a lot of people I know who are around your age and myself when I was around that age, I, I think there's a, like a shedding of the skin experience where you grew up in a certain world. You've got your friends from home you've got your friends from college you might have a girlfriend that sort of from your early 20s or late teens and you know a lot of stuff from that period of your life lingers into your 20s and then around your late 20s early 30s there's a moment where even if you're not conscious of it you are you're saying, okay, is my is the rest of my life going to be a continuation of this, or am I going to leave this and have a different kind of life? And it can be as concrete as, am I going to leave the town I grew up in, or am I going back home? Or am I going to leave the girlfriend that I've had since high school, or am I going to marry her? You know, they're, they're like stay or go decisions that have yeah. to get made at that age. And it's fucking excruciating. It's really hard. And I think a lot of older people forget how hard it is to be young. And I don't forget at all. And I don't know if that's because of the journals I kept or, or what. Um, but I remember how fucking hard it was. And the hardest thing was realizing that I needed to say goodbye to people that I loved and I and that I, it took me so long to deal with that conundrum of like these are good people these are not people I want to reject they're not people I want to hurt but I need to I need to move on I need to go into another world here and I can't take them with me they don't understand where I'm going hmm. um yeah, that's that's been a, a big weight. And so when I talk to someone like you and you're talking about the minimalism of relationships, it's like, fuck, man, that's hard. That's really hard to be. And you've got the added weight of financial success and, you know, whatever public profile you've got. You've got people talking to yeah. you. You don't know who the fuck they are. Yeah. yeah, I would describe it as just constantly raising the standards of what I expect and how I would define different as like a friendship, uh, a close friend, close knit circle, or someone that I unconditionally love. Um, and then also a minimalist is a scientist. We test and uh, analyze and then iterate. We just constantly are testing, 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 uh, instead of just letting things be the way they are and not questioning things. That's pretty much how I define a minimalist. Yeah. Yeah. There's, 
I remember being very comforted by a, a thing I read uh, in a book called A Journey to Ishlan um, by Carlos Castaneda. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was an interesting counterculture figure in the late 70s. He was an anthropologist who wrote a series of books um, sort of about shamanism, and he claimed that he knew this shaman from northern Mexico who sort of changed reality and could like appear and disappear and do all these magical things and yeah. um, it became very controversial whether this shaman even existed or whether this guy had made it all up or whatever um, but he's talking to the shaman at one point and he's sort of you know the young younger man asking the older man for life advice and and he's like, I don't know what path I should choose. And the older guy says, uh, it really doesn't matter which path you choose because they all lead to the same place, which is nowhere, right? Death, everything, all paths lead to death. And he says, the point is to choose a path with heart. That's all you can do. If you're on a path with heart, the path will always be easy for you. You'll enjoy the journey. If you stray from the path with heart, your life becomes torture. And that's how you know. You're either enjoying it or you're not. And I thought, man, that makes perfect sense. Like for me, that 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 became a guiding principle. So it beca it sort of seems selfish in a way because it's all about am I enjoying this or not? But it's more than selfish. It's is this aligned with my essence. Hmm. So when you were talking about, you know, being a scientist and testing and judging and eliminating what doesn't work, it sounds very clinical and maybe cruel in some ways. But I think it's ultimately really life affirming because you only have a certain amount of time and there's only you can only have a certain number of people in your life that you can really pay attention to. Yeah. Yep. And then just placing that time in my resources where it is most efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not just efficient, but enjoyable, right? Like there's no shame the in, max, in pleasure. Amount of enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> I want to maximize efficiency. It sounds, it sounds clinical, but yeah, that's true. Like I don't want to waste my time. Like even when hiking, like every aspect of my life, I try to think how can I get the most out of it in the shortest amount of time? highest quality yeah yeah in relationships too yeah you you do uh commercial photography right or, or have you given that up i don't even know what commercial photography means uh, well you, kind you, of you do jobs right like uh, you were in vietnam or something and you were like i came i did a job for louis vuitton or something. i don't remember who it was yeah right you you like do gigs I've pretty much given all of that up. Yeah, it's been yeah. a sliding scale. Um, and of course, there's a dollar amount that most people would say yes to most things for. Um, yeah, but my filter has been raised and I've applied many filters to what I'll say yes to. Like the last year has been a lot of no's. I've been learning. I've been I've fallen in love with the word no. <laughs> Just to keep my schedule free. And yeah. I've learned, you know, it's an amazing thing when you can have years of experience and then step back 
and analyze patterns. Like I love analyzing patterns because it's not a mystery anymore. Like I see, I see the the height in the trough or whatever, and um, I just don't get much happiness out of making a lot of money in a short amount of time. The long term relationships are just always more life fulfilling, and and eventually they do make me more money down the road. So you know flying somewhere to just make a quick buck for a company that i'll never even get feedback from you know that was a one-off job and i've never talked to anyone i worked with that project ever again <laughs> like so yeah. yeah yeah thinking more long term and less short term so i remember you saying something uh in the video you were talking about how um like you know no criticism of the people you're working with but the models like none of them were happy they were all faking happiness and everything was fake and the props were fake and the settings were fake and it was all just nonsense um and i was really happy to see you say that out loud and also to see how you've designed your life um in a way that allows you to avoid that it's fucking yeah, awesome, that dude. A, that was a very strange trip. Thank you. And of course, it's all in, you have to compare it to something. So it was me projecting, you know, uh, trying to compare my authenticity and how I conduct myself compared to these other people. And that was my first, like, my life, the creator world, YouTube, just influencers in general, people making money through influence. It's kind of fake compared to most people's experiences and jobs and typical day to day. But this trip, <laughs> I don't know if it's because the money was raised, the stakes were raised. It was a, a luxury brand, which is built upon, you know, facade. This trip was insane. <laughs> like the amount of money wasted, the amount of like pointless stuff we did and just the amount of inefficiency was mind boggling. So yeah, I took that bad experience and just 180'd in my own life in the opposite direction. So yeah, I'm yeah. glad that shows. <laughs> yeah. Oof, man. Well, listen, I don't want to take up more of your time. Uh, I really enjoy getting to meet you a little bit here. And um, it's, I just want to say that I spent a lot of time with younger people sort of picking my brains for guidance and um i remember when i was young i had older people in my life who gave me a lot of time and a lot of attention and i was always confused i had imposter syndrome and i was like why why would they like you know why would this professor want to hang out with me why is this you know these people what what are the, what's their agenda what's going on and as I've gotten older, I've come to realize how nourishing it is for older people when you meet someone young who's really who's really conscious and uh, attentive to trying to live life as well as possible. It's inspiring. It works both ways. So thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I honestly could do this. For much longer i have a lot of questions and the more i learn about you the more questions i have so that's a paradox um and i think you're right the selecting knowledge and learning from diverse people and experiences is always better because i don't know what i don't know and yeah yeah i hope we can have more conversations in the future because 
yeah i'm i'm fascinated <laughs> by your travels well, and what you've learned i'm down anytime that's craig adams with a k what a dude interesting guy um highly recommend checking out some of his uh his videos you're gonna get hooked they're awesome uh just such beautiful photography the, the just everything everything you can possibly do to make a video awesome he's done it um he's got uh, compilations he's it's almost like that what's that shit called like esmr or something where people whisper to you and it helps you go to sleep that kind of thing it's like that but visually um yeah I've watched the one in Nepal. I've watched, uh, let's see, one in the desert in Utah. I've watched one in Alaska. I watched that one I mentioned that's like off the coast of Greenland or something. Uh, there are a lot more to watch. I watched one, obviously, where he climbs Kilimanjaro or most of it. Um, but just, yeah, awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Go waste some time on YouTube. CraigAdams.com. Uh Say hi to my mom and Carsey Blanton. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. Oh, one more thing I wanted to say. I keep forgetting. I, I have these show notes, and I keep forgetting to even look at my show notes. Check out Endless Earth. It's another friend of mine. He made this app, and uh, the app is for your phone. I think there's a, a, a desktop, laptop thing as well. Um, but it's basically just curated films uh, around travel. Um, so it's an app and I think it's totally ad free. It's free to, to download it and use it. Endless earth. Check it out. So Craig Adams and endless earth. All right. Here's mom and Carsey. Thanks for listening. Yo talk to you soon. Okay. Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay. In our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts, sex at dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death. Design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. We have stickers and car decals. Right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cage singing in 
to the ground. 